Last time on The Big Switch. And there, there we, we have just heard uh, the first siren has just gone off. Our biggest supplier of natural gas, of coal, of oil, is suddenly attacking one of our neighbors. Russia is cutting off crucial natural gas supplies to both Poland and Bulgaria. And Moscow is threatening to do the same thing to more European nations. It started 350 years ago. Coal was cheap. It was our domestic energy source. And, you know, it developed our economy. There was this strong conviction in Germany that the country needed Russian gas. And there was also the illusion that Russian natural gas was politically neutral. We must now reduce as soon as possible our dependency on Russian fossil fuels. So massive investment in renewable energy. If there's one thing that Arna Young-Johan remembers from April of 1986, it was the radioactive rain. I remember scenes in my local shopping mall when I was hanging out with my friends that when it started to rain, everybody was running inside. Now, people were literally physically afraid of the rain because there was radiation coming down. Arna was 12 years old at the time and living in Langenhagen, a small town in north-central Germany. But a thousand miles to the east, something was releasing a massive cloud of radiation. And at first, no one knew what it was. The Soviet Union at the time did not reveal that there was an accident. But on April 28th, two days after the disaster, radioactive particles were detected in Sweden. And soon the Soviet Union admitted what was happening. It's now clear that the Soviet Union has suffered one of the worst disasters in the history of nuclear power. Massive quantities of radiation have apparently been released in an accident at the Chernobyl power station in the Ukraine. Many thousands of people live in the vicinity. The world soon found out that there'd been an explosion at the power plant. And the immediate impact on the people who worked there and who lived nearby was catastrophic. Dozens died in the immediate aftermath, and the United Nations estimates that thousands more would ultimately die from radiation-related illnesses. And eventually, 350,000 people were relocated. And the radioactive fallout from the explosion didn't stay at the power plant. With winds blowing westward, it made its way to other parts of Europe. And Arna says that for thousands of Europeans, nuclear wasn't an abstract concept back then. For people like me and my generation, we grew up with the experience that nuclear power is not somewhat something invisible that is, you know, that doesn't emit a lot of CO2, but we actually experienced it as a, as a physical threat. Arna is now a German political scientist, and he also co-authored the book Energy Democracy, which talks about Germany's energy transition. And he says that the Chernobyl nuclear accident changed Germany's energy system and its energy politics for decades. While not all Germans are opposed to having nuclear power in their country, in the decades after Chernobyl, mounting social pressures led policymakers in Germany to make a clear decision about the future of nuclear power. No matter if if you consider nuclear as part of a a clean technology in a low-carbon world or not, um, for the Germans, I think it's now much easier moving forward with the certainty of not having nuclear in the grid anymore. And this choice to shift away from nuclear power in Germany helps to explain a lot of things that are happening in this country's energy sector today. 
like how the country has simultaneously built out all of this wind and solar over the past 20 years, but it has also deepened its reliance on large amounts of fossil fuels. This includes natural gas to back up its renewable fleet and coal to play the role that nuclear once played. And these are changes that might seem at odds with the country's climate goals. And this reliance on fossil fuels left Germany really vulnerable last year when Russia cut off the gas that was flowing into the country. Germany used more renewable energy than ever before in 2022. However, it still failed to reach its CO2 reduction goal. Germany is planning to burn more coal, the most polluting fossil fuel, as Russian cuts to gas exports threaten shortfalls. This is The Big Switch. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and I'm the Director of Research at Columbia University's SEPA Center on Global Energy Policy, and I study the technologies and systems that power our world. This season, we're taking a deep dive into the European energy crisis fueled by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Specifically, we're looking at the crisis through the lens of Germany and Poland, and we're asking whether short-term plans to solve the energy crisis are at odds with long-term goals to tackle the climate crisis. And we're trying to answer the trillion-dollar question. Will this energy crisis speed up or slow down Europe's push towards green energy? And what does it mean for the rest of the world? In this episode, Germany's race for renewables and its complicated path towards net zero. Decades after Chernobyl, Germany's energy system has changed dramatically. In 1990, it got 30% of its electricity from nuclear power, and today it generates none. And that's not just because of Chernobyl. Germany has a very long history of activism against nuclear. In the 1970s, as in many Western countries, we saw an expansion of nuclear power. So there were a lot of uh, public investments into nuclear power plants. What we saw at the time was somewhat an anti-nuclear movement that consisted not only of, of, let's say, greenies or tree huggers, but it was actually quite conservative people on the countryside, like farmers. They got together with students and with other people, parents and teachers, uh, just regular folks. And these regular folks made up one wing of activists. The other wing came from the peace movement in Germany. Back then, in the 1970s, Germany was at the frontier of the Cold War, and there were a lot of nuclear weapons being stationed at the time in Germany. And people were actually afraid of if there's another if there's another world war happening, then the country would be wiped out. So stepping back for a moment, before Chernobyl, there was already a lot of debate in Germany about the future of nuclear power. The debate included concerns about the industrialization of the countryside, nuclear weapons, and something we haven't really talked about yet, which is how to store nuclear waste. And so all of this was piling up. And when Chernobyl happened, it was like this spark that lit a fire, pushing German society from being somewhat anti-nuclear to being very anti-nuclear. But... It also catalyzed the search for alternative sources of electricity, like wind and solar. In the 70s and 80s, Germany barely had any renewable energy on the grid. And then things changed in the 90s. There was a law in 1991 called the Feed-In Act. Uh, And what the Germans mean by feed-in is uh, what we, I think, in the States call exporting electricity to the grid. Craig Morris is an American journalist in Berlin who's been covering German energy since 2000. He's also Arna Young-Johan's co-author on Energy Democracy. And they basically said if you're, if you're doing solar, wind, um, small hydro, basically new renewables, then uh, you shouldn't have to 
settle for a price that the utility is willing to pay, right? Because they don't want your electricity. In the early days, renewables looked like a risky bet, and there was a lot of pushback from the power industry. The doubters originally were the energy experts, the conventional utilities. But the Feed-In Act got the ball rolling. It paid renewables a standard rate to deliver power, enough to support early projects and build out a real budding industry. A decade later, the Feed-In Act got a big update when a new party came into power, with big consequences for both renewables and nuclear. In the year 2000, we, we had a new coalition in place, the first time ever that the Green Party joined the coalition on the national level. This renewable energy law from the year 2000, this was their signature policy. Today, the Green Party is a big force in German politics. But back in 2000, they were just getting their first shot at national power. They were in a coalition government with another party called the Social Democrats. And one of their big priorities was shutting down nuclear power. So the government negotiated an agreement with utilities where two things would happen. First, no more new nuclear power plants would be built. And second, they would close the remaining nuclear power plants by around 2020. Their other big priority? Expanding wind, solar, and bioenergy. The policy was implemented and then um, put, the, put the way forward for a lot of investment in renewables. The landmark Renewable Energy Act was an upgrade on the original Feed-In Act, and it guaranteed that wind and solar would get a standard rate for generating electricity. It was then revised and improved so that these rates actually reflected um, specifically what the technologies needed to be profitable. Today, the cost of wind and solar power has gone down so much that they can produce really cheap electricity. But back in the 90s and 2000s, they were young technologies, and they were pretty expensive. And like Craig said, utilities weren't supporting them. Instead, they were being supported by a lot of regular people who just wanted to have a say in where their power came from. Yeah, I think what, the, what this policy did was to bring in a lot of certainty for investors. So no matter if you ran a if you invested into wind turbines, if you put solar panels on your roof, or farmers got together for biogas plants, they knew that once they operate this technology, they have a payment certainty for 20 years. And so that economic certainty opened up this market to individuals and companies who wanted to reap the benefits of renewables. And for another decade, wind and solar grew, blasting past all the expectations. They wanted to have at least 20% renewable electricity by 2020. And they were laughed at for this. We had twice as much, okay? We've gone twice as fast. Another example is that uh, about five years later, um, some of our top photovoltaics experts began forecasting that we could have five cent solar electricity by 2050. We had it by 2015, not 2050. So Germany quickly went from getting about 6% of its power from renewables in 2000 to getting 46 in 2022. For comparison, that same year, the U.S. only got 22% from renewables. And Germany's policy had a global impact. Many other countries started developing feed-in tariffs, and demand for renewables exploded. Manufacturers ramped up. 
deployment costs for renewables fell, and soon there was this global race underway to dominate renewable supply chains. And with renewables going full force, Germany continued its plan to phase out nuclear, and they stuck to that plan until 2010. This was when a new conservative government that was led by Chancellor Angela Merkel reconsidered extending the timeline to keep nuclear on the grid. It was a pretty controversial move. There were a lot of protests uh, in the spring of 2011 already against Merkel's uh, pro-nuclear stand, and then Fukushima happened. Fukushima's nuclear complex came to grips with a grim reality today. Officials admitted seven damaged reactors are teetering on the edge of a possible meltdown. The Fukushima disaster was the last nail in the coffin for nuclear in Germany. Merkel's government reversed course. It shut down eight reactors, and then it proposed closing the rest by 2022. And in April of this year, the last three nuclear reactors in Germany were shut down. Activists have been celebrating the shutdown of Germany's last three nuclear power plants. The decision to flick this red switch to the off position was made more than a decade ago, but repeatedly put back because of concerns over where alternative power sources would be found. Nuclear is out. Germany has a lot of wind and solar, and it's just adding more. So what does this mean for the power grid? There are three big implications. The first is firm, dispatchable power, specifically coal. Climate activist Greta Thunberg detained while protesting in a Western German village that's set to be demolished to make way for the expansion of a coal mine. In January of 2023, Greta Thunberg was in the small German village called Lutzerath. The 20-year-old smiling as she was carried out by officers in riot gear. A police spokesperson saying she and others were moved due to their proximity to the edge of a mine. Lutzerath has become a symbol for the state of coal in Germany. There is a debate in Germany um, around, has Germany followed the right pathway in substituting initially nuclear power through renewables rather than coal? This is Philip Godrin. He's an energy researcher at the German think tank Agora Energiewende, where he leads the power program. The debate that he's talking about is this. Should Germany push nuclear out first, or should it focus on phasing out coal? Because of Germany's boom in renewables and its growing natural gas generation, it has historically had excess power on the grid, and therefore it had some wiggle room when it came to choosing between phasing out coal or nuclear. When you look at the numbers, what we're seeing is that the strong growth of renewables has been very successful in substituting nuclear during these same 20 years where uh, nuclear power share was reduced from 30% to 0%. Renewables has grown from roughly 5% to 46%. Nuclear has been completely substituted by renewables in terms of annual power generation. Renewables are a very valuable resource, but they have their limitations. And the key here is annual power generation. That's an average. So renewables can deliver a lot of electricity over the course of a year, but because they are variable and fluctuate when the sun, wind, or water resources are available, they aren't delivering electricity around the clock. Grids can handle a lot of variable renewables, but they also need to be supported by technologies that can bridge these gaps when renewables aren't around. 
Both coal and nuclear are types of firm power generation, which means that it can provide electricity 24-7, 365, whenever we need it. And so when Germany chose to close its nuclear power plants, it had to rely on something else for this firm power. And the obvious option was coal. They already had coal plants and they had coal mines. And coal was, and still is, relatively cheap. Now, you can, of course, do the math. And if Germany hadn't phased out nuclear, this same amount of renewables would have theoretically been able to substitute coal completely. Which led to more greenhouse gas emissions than if Germany had first closed down coal. So if you're looking at it from a climate, pure climate perspective, that's a correct assessment. It's also why Germany is still mining for coal and expanding the coal mine in Lutzerat, and why Greta was there protesting back in January. Now, to be clear, coal use in Germany has been falling over the past 20 years, and this is partly because renewables have been getting much cheaper, and also because of concerns about climate change and air pollution. And at the same time, we have seen a reduction of coal generation from around 50% to around a bit more than 25%. Ultimately, Germany is planning to phase out coal power by 2038, and maybe sooner. When that happens, the country will need new technologies on the grid to make up that firm power. But in the meantime, coal is still a crucial part of Germany's grid. And that brings us to another big impact of variable renewables, managing short-term fluctuations on the grid. This is short-term variations. We're talking about changes of power output within minutes, hours, or a few hours. We can actually predict these short-term variations pretty well. Forecasting future solar and wind generation has become pretty sophisticated, but variability still presents a challenge for balancing the grid. See, the way that the grid works is that you always have to have supply and demand in balance. I'm talking about down to the millisecond. If you have too much power at any moment, electronics can break. And if you have too little, then the lights go out. So when you have fluctuating demand and you have fluctuating supply, that's a really tricky dance. And then you have these longer-term variations. The other thing is, of course, that there are seasonal variabilities. Wind is usually producing electricity more in the winter month, whereas solar power is stronger in spring and summer. So how does Germany balance supply and demand on its grid with all of these variable renewables? It can use energy storage to fill some, but not all, of the gaps. And at the end of the day, it needs other power sources that are flexible. What you need to balance a power system with renewables, you need some kind of generation that helps or that jumps in when renewables are not producing. There's different ways of dealing with that today. First and foremost, the power plants that are still in the system, meaning hydropower plants, but also, um, of course, gas-fired power plants, coal-fired power plants, until recently even nuclear-fired power plants. But nuclear has a challenge as well. More specifically, it isn't that great at balancing these kinds of hourly or seasonal fluctuations. Nuclear has long been perceived at, as not an ideal partner of renewables just because um, the flexibility of nuclear, although it is larger than we have understood in the past, is, is still limited. In contrast to Germany, France has built out a lot of nuclear power. 
But like Philip is saying, you really don't want to ramp nuclear up and down that much. So it's been harder to add wind and solar to France's power grid. That inflexible nuclear power has crowded out variable renewables. And then there's coal. We've been hearing 10, 15 years ago, a coal-fired power plant runs flat, can increase a bit by 10% the output up and down. And what we've been observing is that in reality, a lot of coal-fired power plants have been changing their output um, both in terms of how high they can go and how low they can go, but also the speed at which they have adopted their output quite a bit. The major problem is that even though coal plants can be ramped up and down a bit more than nuclear, it generally isn't cheap. It's actually pretty expensive. And the third option for flexibility? Transmission. In other words, Germany can use wires to import electricity from its neighbors. At times where there is abundant energy in Germany, which is mainly means when there's abundant renewables, our neighbors benefit from cheap renewables that they are happily importing. Um, while at the times where there's less output of um, renewables power, Germany is importing electricity from its neighbor. There are a few other options for backing up renewables. For example, we can use batteries or hydropower. Every single one has limitations. Batteries will only bridge gaps for a few hours, not a few weeks. And until quite recently, they were pretty expensive. Hydropower depends on geography. So places like Norway, China, and the United States have a lot of hydropower, but there's just not a lot of that available in Germany. But there's another big option for backing up renewables. It's cleaner than coal, and it's way more flexible than nuclear. And you can place it pretty much anywhere. And that's gas. Gas-fired power plants are the most flexible form of fossil fuel power generation today. Um, which means that a gas-fired power plant within a few minutes can change output from about 10% of the nameplate capacity. So imagine you have a, a 250 megawatt power plant producing 25 um, megawatt at a certain minute and then going down to 200 megawatt within five minutes. Gas has been a critically important tool for supporting renewables as they've grown. From 2000 to 2020, renewables jumped from a fraction of power consumed in Germany to almost half. At the same time, coal and nuclear use dropped pretty dramatically. But gas power, it doubled to about 16% of annual power consumption. Gas was also important for displacing coal-fired power. Not only was it cheaper, it also helped reduce carbon emissions. But there's a downside, too. Germany's parliament on Friday agreed to reactivate retired coal power plants to generate electricity. This would decrease their reliance on precarious Russian supplies, but would potentially bring the country further from its climate goals. After Russia invaded Ukraine last year, gas supplies got really tight. And so to conserve gas, Germany decided to temporarily restart some of their idle coal plants. Germany planned to eliminate coal by 2030, but reactivating coal plants may put this target in jeopardy. Germany's plan is to use these coal plants, but only do it temporarily. They're slated to close again in 2023 and 2024. Meanwhile, it's still building a ton of renewables, meaning that the flexibility of the power sector is going to have to keep up. We need to look at what is Germany uh, has been doing up to today and is doing today to address this variability and what Germany is preparing for 
in a system where we don't only have 46% of renewables like today, but where we'll have 80% renewables in 2030 or 100% of renewables in 2035. Unless Germany can deploy new technologies to replace gas-fired power plants, the country is going to need even more gas in the future. And there are other technologies that Germany can use, and we'll get to those in just a second. But first, we need to talk about another big change that's happening in Germany. I'm talking about electrification. This is when you take a fossil fuel burning activity and you make it electric. An obvious example is changing from an internal combustion engine to an electric vehicle. But the one on everyone's mind since Russia invaded Ukraine is how we heat our homes. And when we talk about renewables, we're talking about electricity. But today, about half of German households use natural gas for heating. It's a part of the energy transition that Germany just hasn't focused much on, until recently. Probably for too long, the focus has been on the power sector. We have been having successes in growing renewables there, and we have at the same time been neglecting the transformation in other sectors, in the heating sector, in industry, and also in mobility. And these are areas where Germany is quite a bit away from being neither a pioneer nor a front runner. Can you talk me through why that's the case? Like, what are the factors that have caused Germany to focus more on its power sector than on heating and transportation and other parts of the energy system? Basically, the story went, well, if you don't want nuclear power and one third of our power provision is from nuclear how and what are, you, are we going to substitute it with? So those that were against nucleus had to start thinking about what to substitute it with. And then the fact that there has been quite a bit of success in accelerating um, the buildup of renewables made Germany, to some extent, focus on that area, focus on these successes. And then there was kind of at, at the horizon looming the idea of electrifying. So you, you just use power for, for these other sectors and then it will work out. But this will take some time. And when you talk about electrifying a lot of Germany's economy, like what are Germany's plans for solving this? What does it look like in the short term and then in the longer term? We have a big discussion these days in Germany around the transformation of the heating sector that has, of course, been accelerated by the fossil gas crisis last year. The big question is, how can we make sure that to start off with new heating systems that are being installed are renewables-based? And um, there's a regulation that's under discussion, says that everything installed from Next year onwards has to be 65% renewables-based. For a large chunk of households, this will mean using heat pumps. Um, that will be the most efficient um, solution. And, and there are ambitious plans. By 2030, number of heat pumps installed should be 6 million, um, 500,000 new heat pumps per year, it, it's In the end, it's a simple calculation. If we want to be carbon neutral by 2045, we cannot afford what we're still doing, installing a lot of gas and oil-based new heating systems. 
This push to use heat pumps is something that we'll dig into more in episodes three and four of this series. But what matters for the power sector is that as Germany is installing more heat pumps and electric vehicle charging stations too, it's going to need a lot more electricity, which means a more flexible electricity system that will have a lot more variable renewables, more energy storage, and firm power to back them all up. So Germany is building more renewables, phasing out coal, and has turned off its nuclear. What is it going to do with gas? And what other options does it have? One flexible option that we've talked about is batteries. They've gotten much cheaper over the last decade, and they offer a solution for balancing out renewable projects. But they can't store electricity cost-effectively for more than a few hours. There are other forms of long-duration storage, so pumped hydro, compressed air, hydrogen, and some other up-and-coming technologies that could fill this gap, but they are still limited by both geography and cost. So what can Germany do? One option is to take advantage of liquefied natural gas terminals, pipelines, and power plants that are already in existence, which is what Germany is doing right now. I asked Craig Morris about this. We're coming into 2022 and Russia invades Ukraine. What are the biggest changes that you've seen since that moment in terms of Germany's energy transition? Germany has added massive natural gas importing infrastructure uh, to an extent that was unimaginable. I I never thought that we would actually have uh, LNG terminals, so liquefied natural gas terminals in Germany, uh, because you could calculate that you wouldn't need it. The problem is that not needing it requires a a longer kind of phase-out, a gradual uh, transition having to shut off uh, Russian gas, um, which was uh, the main supplier of gas to Germany at the time, um, just meant that I think the government kind of freaked out, including the Greens in the government. They didn't want to be seen as the people who dropped the ball. Uh, So we have probably overbuilt import capacity, but some of the stuff is permanent and um, it's based on LNG from places like Qatar and North America. The energy fallout from Russia's invasion of Ukraine showed all of Europe that it needs to wean itself off of Russian natural gas. And Germany is hoping that a different type of gas can help them to do it. One that doesn't put carbon emissions into the air. I'm talking about hydrogen. The entire vision that Germany has had for the past few decades has always assumed that, you know, maybe not exactly the gas infrastructure we have now would be used, but that in some way we would just transition gradually from natural gas to green hydrogen. Hydrogen, um, of course, can be produced through different sources. The idea here in a um, sustainable um, power system is hydrogen produced by renewables. So you transfer um, electric power into hydrogen and then um, you store, you're able to store the hydrogen for these um, uh, weeks in winter where you have little wind and little um, solar and then you're running hydrogen-fueled power plants to provide electricity during these times. Germany will need to invest quite heavily. Uh, We are talking about around 20 gigawatt of additional gas-fired power plants by 2030. The government is currently discussing how to incentivize that these are not going to be only fossil gas for the next few years, but these plants need to be hydrogen-ready the transformation will then strongly have to happen in the late 2020 and the early 2030s. 
We're going to dig deeper into the viability of hydrogen in Europe in episode five. And if you want to learn more about the different ways that we can make hydrogen, then you can go back to our episode from last year called the Hydrogen Rainbow. But in Germany, it's enough to say that it has big plans for using hydrogen to reach net zero. So let's take a step back and recap. Germany is at this messy midpoint in the energy transition where it has a lot of renewables, but it still uses a lot of fossil fuels. Why is that? Well, first, Germany's decision to close down nuclear meant that it had to rely more on fossil fuels, including coal. As Germany adds more renewables to the grid, it's going to need ways to back them up with flexible resources like gas, hydrogen, transmission, and energy storage. And finally, to get all the way to net zero, Germany's going to need to electrify everything that it can, and especially things that currently rely on fossil fuels like heating their homes. And that will put new demands on managing an increasingly renewable grid. But honestly, if there has ever been a moment when people believe that it both can be done and it should be done, it is right now. Europe has come together in a really cohesive way that must be really surprising to Putin because it's surprising to us. Uh, It's surprising to have Poland, Germany, Hungary, France, all these countries that disagree on so many things really pulling in one direction on the entire Ukraine issue. And the energy sector is tied to that, right? And so switching over now to domestic green energy supply is just, I think it's more accepted by everyone in the meantime. In our next episode, we look at Poland. This is a country that still gets 70% of its electricity from coal. But where Germany has decided to phase out nuclear, Poland has chosen to build up its nuclear fleet. And so we ask, could this nuclear help Poland end its relationship with coal? And crucially, do Germany and Poland have the workforce they need to get all this work done? In fact, the plans are so ambitious that one of the main concerns that we have over here right now is that we just don't have the people to build everything that's planned. The Big Switch is produced by Columbia University's SEPA Center on Global Energy Policy in partnership with PostScript Media. If you appreciate the reporting and the storytelling that the team is doing here, you can rate and review the show on Apple and Spotify. And you can also send a link to a colleague or a friend who you think would like it. You can find all of our back episodes along with this current season wherever you get your pods. The show is produced by Daniel Waldorf, Dan Ackerman, Camille Stennis, Anne Bailey, and Stephen Lacey. Anne Bailey is our senior editor. Sean Marquand wrote our theme song and mixed the episodes. And a special thanks to our Columbia team, Natalie Volt, Q Lee, Jen Wu, and Harry Kennard. The show is hosted by me, Dr. Melissa Lott. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.